And so I want to invite you, if you will, we're going to read together in 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to read through and kind of walk through uh, a few of these verses looking at a story from the Old Testament. Now, 1 and 2 Kings, if they were one book, would be the longest book in the entirety of the Bible. But they're split apart. And they are about kings. I know. They're about kings of Israel and Judah. So here in the biblical timeline, we see the, the families that are dysfunctional, that, that, that God has chosen. It says, look, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Uh, even then they kind of wander, they're in captivity, God delivers them. And then when, he, when they receive this promised land that God gives them, they begin to kind of wander again and do their own thing. And so the book of Judges, even before this, shows us that there's this little phrase throughout the book of Judges, and it says, and the people did whatever was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. They had no king. They had no godly leadership. And so they just did whatever they wanted. And so you have these crazy stories. Now that's important because often we tell those stories like of Samson as though they're supposed to be like a hero. But the book of Judges is about what happens when people do whatever they want, right? And so, so that's, that's where those pictures are. You're meant to see like, wow, that guy's clearly messed up. And so the people of God instead of just being led by God and by his prophet, they cry out to God in the beginning of 1 Samuel. They say, we want a king. We want to be like all of our neighbors and have a king. And God warns them, says, look, okay, you're, you're going to get a king, but you're not going to like it. He's not going to represent me rightly. He's going to leave you hungry for a greater king. Wink, wink, Jesus, right? So like these people get a king, Saul, he he blasphemes, he, he does some awful sacrilegious things, he's replaced by another king who seems like he's going to be perfect, but still leaves you hungry for a better king. And then he has a son, they all try to kill each other, Solomon takes the throne, really wise, but in a, in a really ironic sort of way, disobeys God and, and marries a lot of women that, that worship other gods, just like he was warned not to do. And as a result, the kingdom is split into pieces amongst his descendants. And so you have two kingdoms that exist throughout the book of first and second kings and a prophet that god appoints to speak to these kings you've got israel and then you've got judah israel basically is a kind of a collection of of the larger the majority of the tribes of judah and they they're essentially led by warlords they're essentially like whoever won the last battle gets to be king and that's Israel. That's the setting for this. Now, the other one that we, we realize and we hear more about the, for the rest of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, is Judah. And that think when you think Judah, just think Jerusalem, think David, right? The lineage of kingship through Judah was supposed to be, or hopefully through the lineage of David. But in Israel, it's basically like every man for himself. And so God raises up in his own sovereign way different kings and different kingdoms to deliver judgment and to, to demonstrate truths to these people. And so the first king's book is predominantly about a prophet by the name of Elijah. And second kings, for the most part, after the first couple of chapters, Elijah passes on his representation or like he passes on his mantle, the, the, the honor and and the responsibility to be God's man and God's prophet to the kings passes it on to a guy by the name of Elisha. Now, I want to articulate that clearly because a lot of the times in your, in your own Bible memory, you just blend them together and you make an Elijah. Uh, but just remember, Elijah is 1 Kings. Elisha is in 2 Kings. And here we find the first few chapters of 2 Kings, God is demonstrating through miraculous signs and wonders 
that he has not abandoned his people, but he has put Elisha to speak truth and to, and to speak wisdom and to speak prophetic words to his people, specifically to the kings of Israel. And one of those kings, one of those enemies that God has used to judge those people are the Syrians. At this particular time, it would have been the most powerful, most violent empire in the world. But God uses them to take over and to speak a word of judgment to demonstrate for us that God is sovereign over all things. We pick up in verse 1, and the key character for this chapter, in verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, that is the king, and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So see this main character. It's a, a character we're introduced to. The king of Syria has a hitman. He is a right-hand man. And this man, we come to find out, it says is a mighty man of valor. He is gifted in all sorts of different ways. He's the guy you want to be like. He's, he's the hero. He's the guy all the men wish they could be like. He's, he's the kind of guy that all the women wishes their husband was more like. He's that guy, okay? He's a mighty man, right? This guy, is, he's brilliant. He's successful. He is loved and trusted by people who are powerful. The king of Syria trusts him and, and puts his entire military strategy into the hands of this man, Naaman. And he has everything you would want. But he has kind of a secret, something that he doesn't want anyone to know about, a thing that we see here, leprosy. Now, at this particular time, there was no cure for leprosy, and leprosy would have represented a terminal illness. It would have represented something there was no cure for, something that typically, if anyone knew about, you were cast out. In fact, I encourage you, it's one of, my, one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, but it's a couple chapters later, God saves the city of Samaria and he uses a bunch of outcasts, lepers, people who had been kicked out and weren't allowed even to live with the people. And this mighty man of valor, the man everyone would have wanted to be like, the guy you would have wanted to know, had a deadly secret that was killing him. Now, evidently, it wasn't so bad at this particular point that he was incapable of functioning, right? He still was a mighty man of valor. He was still trusted by the king. But it was something that evidently kind of like no one really knew about. It says, as we go on to pick up in verse 2, it says, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Okay, so we're now we're introduced to another character. First, we had the king of Syria, and the king of Syria's right-hand military man, his key general, key leader, Naaman, and then now we're introduced to a couple other people. There's, there's Naaman's wife, and then Naaman's wife has apparently a servant girl, a servant girl that would have been taken into captivity as the Syrians took over Israel. Right? Remember, whoever wins kind of has the power. And so they would have taken whatever they wanted, whether it's riches, gold, you name it, even people, and brought this servant girl into the service of Naaman's wife. And she, in verse 3, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He 
would cure him of his leprosy. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is probably one of the most insignificant people you could imagine in history. In fact, we don't even know her name. And yet something amazing is brewing in her. She knows something. She knows something about who God is and what God does. And she does something powerful. She doesn't simply isolate herself. She doesn't simply keep what she knows about God to be a secret, even though she's in exile, even though she would have been ridiculed for believing what she believed. Even in exile, even as an outcast, even as a nobody, she worked her circle. She took this sphere of influence that she had been given and she leveraged it to make sure that if she had an opportunity, she was going to tell someone else about who this God was and what this God does. She says to her mistress, the person, she said, look, I wish my Lord, I wish that is Naaman, your husband, I wish my Lord Naaman, I wish he was with the prophet who's in Samaria. Because if he was, I promise you, you'd find out something about our God. Our God has the power to do these things. He would cure him of leprosy. And this secret thing that is killing this person, this thing that is bringing about the doom of Naaman, I know something about a God who saves people like that. She said to her mistress, I wish that he knew of this. So in verse 4, it says, Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So Naaman went to his lord, that is the king, Naaman, the right-hand man of the king, goes to the king and says, look, thus and so spoke a girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing, because you never know. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now don't miss what just happened there. Right? Naaman basically just went and thought he could buy a miracle. Because that, that's typically how we understand things. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. You've got to store up some sort of a good thing in order to receive a good thing from God. Notice, this, 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 is, a, this is the foundation, this is the beginning of misunderstanding of what God does. But he's going to go buy a miracle, right? He goes and gets the most powerful man he knows. Listen, hey, help me out. I heard there's this thing. There's a person apparently heals people. Would you hook me up? The most powerful, the most, most important and influential person in the world this particular time, the king of Syria, Syria would have been able to ask whatever he wanted of anybody he wanted anything from. And that's what he did. And he basically kind of like pawns off his stuff to, to be ready to give to buy himself a miracle. And the king sends the message to the king of Israel. And then you see the second layer of misunderstanding of the way that God works. Did you catch that? He's like, look. And he goes to the king. And he assumes something. He assumes that the king and the prophet work together. He assumes that like God and the king are the same thing. But we know something different, don't we? And we're meant to even like revel in that we're meant to go like whoa this isn't the king this king is simply to he's an appetizer he's he's simply meant to like wet our appetites for the king that's coming he's not god he just represents god in a limited way and so he even says look look you do this not realizing that elisha the prophet and elijah his his predecessor did whatever god told them to even especially if it put them at risk with other kings so it says that when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, he, he understands this, am I God 
to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel knows he can't perform the miracle. And he thinks that the king of Syria is picking a fight, right? Hey, get the guy to heal me. And that way, if he doesn't, then the Syrian king has a reason to come in and plunder Israel and take whatever he wants. And so the king of Israel even is worried like this. I'm not sure what God's going to do here. Apparently the king of Syria is trying to kill me. I like it in the Old Testament whenever you see the word but. Verse 8, you catch it? But. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, We, and why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Don't miss this. This mighty man of valor has been praying and wishing, trying to buy a miracle. He's, he's wanted as, as much as a person can want something. He knows how precious and valuable his life is. He's the most important person there is other than the king. And so he's been trying as hard as he can to find. He's probably been to every doctor. He's probably done everything he could to stay alive. And finally, he goes and he has a word from the prophet of God. If you will go and wash yourself in the river Jordan, if you will do this thing, you will be made clean. He's wanted this. He's prayed for this. He's desired this. This is the thing he needs to live. And you would think he would be joyful. And you would think he would be so grateful. And you would think that there's nothing better in the world for him. But we're often oblivious to the things in our own lives that are obvious to others. Look at his response. Verse 11. But Naaman was what? Angry. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And then he makes a dig. He says, Are not Abana and Parfar, or Farpar, excuse me, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in what? A rage. And you think, Naaman, the thing you've wanted, the thing you've prayed for, the thing you've begged, borrowed, and steal, and bargained to get access to is right here. And this, this, we love this, this servant girl and, and knows the God who heals and directs a word, this good news that there is a God who heals and he's got access to him and he's heard a word that if you will but believe and trust in this God, this will make you clean. You've got everything you want right here. And what was his response? He was angry. He was furious. He was absolutely, he says he was in a rage. And the reason is that we're often op just completely oblivious to the things that, as people watch us, 
would say are completely obvious. There's an amazing thing we learn here. He has access to what God is doing, and he leaves angry. Uh, notice, notice the way it describes how he misses out on what God's doing. Uh, did, did you catch that? Two different times, it, with a great deal of like specificity, it says here, he had something going on. And what was it? He was angry. It was his emotions. Don't miss that. In that moment where he had access to the work of God in his life, the thing that clouded him, the thing that kept him from it, the thing that kept him from receiving and participating in what God was doing to heal him was what? His emotions. And that really is the case, isn't it? Like, no, no one ever wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm going to destroy my life today. Like, no one looks out across their life and they're like, you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be an addict. I want to battle addiction my whole life. That's what I want to do. No one looks at me and goes, you know what? I'm going to ruin my marriage. You know what? I want to fail at several vocations. You know what? I want to get laid off or fired. No one ever sets out to, to make some of these kinds of decisions that end poorly because they think and reason it all the way through. They do these kinds of things because in the moment, it just feels right. It feels right. And you do what feels right to you in the moment. Always. You do what feels, this, this, clearly this, this is what feels good. Now part of that is we talk about on a regular basis because we're not really rational thinking beings. We're actually loving beings. We're defined more by what we love and adore and have affections toward than what we really think. Right? This, is, this explains the existence of Cheetos, Correct? Nobody eats Cheetos because they're like, what's the best possible offer? What is the best scientific, reasonable, rational thing to do right now? Right? Like, you, know, you don't open the back, you read the back. Hmm. No. Why don't you do that? There's something in you that, oh, it just tastes good. I must have this. The fast food industry is predicated upon this passion of yours. And it's important because we often think that the way to, like, get at people and to change their minds about things is to make rational, reasonable arguments. But we're not really rational, reasonable people. We wish we were. We wish we were. St. Augustine says it this way, that in the end, our hearts have a deep longing that will always be unsatisfied and they will be restless until they rest in God alone. We saw this in Ecclesiastes. It gives us this wisdom. It says that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. Who can discern it? God has implanted something. God has wired us this way to have affections for the things that are the most valuable. And in the moments, in the moments where we're willing to throw out reason and ration, we just go with what feels good. And I would argue we become oblivious to the most reasonable and rational thing. Most rational thing. This, here's what I would argue to you then. This is what this means. In this moment, Naaman thought he knew what he was going to do and his emotions got the better of him. Ever been there? And here's why. The most deceptive person you know is in the mirror every morning. The person who has deceived you and lied to you more than anyone else is in the middle of all your last selfies. All of them. And this is for us. Don't miss this. Don't push back against this. The world says that the problem is out there. But if you look inside yourself, 
Express yourself, discover yourself, find yourself, look inside, whatever, if you can find the solution in yourself, you'll fix what's pro- the problem that's out there. It's them, it's what they did to you, or it's what happened to you. And that is, friend, there's no hope in that. You're digging into a, a bottomless pit of darkness. And the good news that we find is that the, actually the deepest problem is in you. And God, who is not you, who is separate from you, who is apart from you, has granted a gift alien to you in Jesus Christ to fix what is deeply broken inside of you. No one's lied to you, no one's deceived you, no one's disappointed you more than you. And this is a great thing to talk about this day and age, right? Because if you want to be like, hey, uh, you know, what's your biggest problem? You can ask anybody to pull out their smartphone, and they got a massive photo reel of it. Well, here's my biggest problem. Uh, here's, here's, here's the biggest liar in my life at the beach. Here's the biggest liar in my life uh, uh, with my niece and nephew, right? Ooh, look, here's the biggest liar in me. I'm standing next to, to, to Mickey Mouse. And you have a photo reel of the greatest deceiver that you know. And when we wander off away from what God has for us, it's rarely theological, philosophical, or even rational. It just feels right. No one sets out to do this. And Naaman here is about to miss the biggest miracle of his entire life. Why? Because he's too good for it? And he has access to this. And he's in this moment about to wander away. Solomon comes along in the book of Proverbs and puts it this way. This greatest deception that exists. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. There's a way that feels right in the moment. There's a way that feels good. And we come to find out that that way is likely the thing that will destroy you. It gets worse. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't want you to miss this. He, he thought he could buy a miracle. He thought he could purchase the work of God in his life, and he's about, to wa- he's about to walk away and miss out on the greatest possible thing that could have happened in his life. And he turns away in verse 12 in a rage. Remember that word again? Remember that word, but? Keep reading, verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it's a term of honor, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he that is Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Naaman was this close to missing out on the greatest blessing of his entire life, all because he thought he knew better. It seemed too simple, or maybe it seemed too humble. And maybe Elisha meant it to be. Maybe Elisha meant, I mean, you notice Elisha didn't even come out to greet him, right? This is a mighty man of valor. People don't treat him that way, right? This is, this is the kind of man who walks in the room and everyone gets quiet and steps out of the way. That's what kind of man this man is. And so when he goes to the prophet Elisha, and he doesn't even come, he sends his servant. Like, here, tell him, go out there, 
wash in the Jordan. You almost got to think Elisha was even proving a point by the what he said. Like, look, if you're not going to humble yourself and see the way that God actually works through humility, I mean, think about it, this is a principle throughout the Old New Testament. God opposes the proud, but what? Draws near to the humble. He may have been doing that. We don't know. But for whatever, whatever reason, he just says, all right, Naaman, you go down to the Jordan and wash. And he's, he's like, I'm above that. I mean, I, I, do you know where I'm from? Oh, we have much better rivers where I'm from. Why don't I just go wash in those? And he's about to walk away because it infuriates him. He's insulted by this. But lo and behold, you see what happened? But his servants, right? It's his posse. I mean, notice this. You don't get anywhere in life. You don't experience any success without having at least a few people around you to encourage you. But his servants, think his friends, think his, you know, this is his fam, right? This is, these are his people, this, this is a squad. This is who it, here's where I want you to insert the words gospel community. But these people around him came near. Love that. It says he, they came near. Don't you love that? They came near and said, My father, in endearment, love, and care. Because they know they're about to disagree with him, right? They're, no about to, they're about to tell the, the mighty man of valor he's wrong. And so they come, My father term of respect and endearment, my father, there's a good word that you've heard here. Will you not do it? Hasn't he said to you, you can have the thing that you want? And there's an amazing thing we find to be true here. Even though the heart is deceitful above all else, God hasn't abandoned us. There is a clarity that only comes through community. There is a clarity that only comes in community. Now, you typically know this in most areas of your life, right? So you know if you're going to succeed in business, you're going to start that business, or you're going to invest that money, you typically do this well. You you typically have a group of people around you. If you're going to be successful, this is side note here, if if you find yourself in a list of failures, I bet at at least one of the ingredients is that you never ask anyone smarter than yourself what you ought to really do, okay? But like you know this, like if you you know if you're you're planning for retirement, you have a you have a like a, a manager, you have somebody who advises you financially. You know this. There's outside help that can give you some sense of insight. They could speak words of wisdom into you. You know this. You experience this probably more than you realize. But real and genuine clarity doesn't come apart from community. Naaman's about to throw away. He's about to throw away the most amazing thing possible. And it was the people around, the people he allowed to come in and speak wisdom into his life that redirected him toward what God was capable of doing. So I want you to begin to think about this. I want you to begin to ask these kinds of questions. It's going slow. Who have you given permission to bring clarity to your life? And I want to pose something to you that I think is a New Testament theme. Christians relinquish the right to say none of your business. I choose those words carefully. Who have you given permission to speak words of clarity over your life? That's important. Who you have given permission to, that's a key, right? Because you know exactly what happens. You're in the middle of making a decision that's kind of bad, and someone comes and goes, hey, I, th- I, think, I think this, I think you might. And what do you say? You say, mind your business. You don't know me. And you immediately push back. 
And so I asked that with a great deal, a great deal of precision. Who have you actually given permission to? Who are the people that you've decided to say, I will no longer tell that person, mind your own business. I will never tell that person, none of your business ever again. Because I would argue that the Christian life is something that is meant to be lived in community. In fact, what I would even push so far to say that following Jesus is a we thing, not a me thing. So much so that when you begin to experience this, the New Testament is, an, is a Bible uh, the whole, it is a church-centric book. The whole Bible is a church-centric book. It, is, it leads up to and speaks of the church, speaking to people who, who, who begin to follow Jesus and they start to plant churches. It explodes until the very end of the book. The book of Revelation is written to who? To the churches. It is a church-centric book. There is no such thing as following Jesus apart from the church in the Bible. Now, in American Western Christianity, we figured out a loophole, Right? We figured out a loophole. No, no, I can do this. But I guess here's what I would say. One of my mentors would put it this way. Like, like saying that you're, you're a Christian but don't belong to a church is like saying that you're married but you don't really have a wife, right? It's like, I'm married. Well, where, okay, who are you married to? I'm just married. <laughs> this, the, the New Testament paints a picture of faithfulness that only exists within community. It only exists. Now, I want you to see, like, the, the it's a cool little, like, a gift here for us that, that want to do this faithfully, um, and because this might seem scary, but notice they, they give us at least a, a two-fold formula for rebuke. The first one I mentioned earlier, they said father, right? So they have love and honor and care and humility, and they come alongside of them, and the first ingredient is that they, they love this person, right? Now, if, if you just like telling people that you're wrong, or, you know, if you just, that just feels good rolling off your tongue, uh, then you don't really love them. You just love being right, okay? And so that's not what we're talking. Notice what they do. They're like, we love you. We, we know this. We know you're not going to respond so great to this, but this is what's going on. And the second thing, notice what they do. They remind him of good news. Don't miss that. First, they love him, and they approach him in love. My father, and they, what do they remind him of? What do they remind him of? The great word. Oh, there's a great word here that's been spoken over your life, Naaman. What you're currently believing about yourself and about the world is not true. There is a better word spoken by a great and merciful God, and the thing he speaks over you is that you can be clean. There's a twofold component to speaking with clarity to people in community. I would argue it's why we do what we do in gospel community. Hebrews puts it this way. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you catch that? Remember what I told you? Like the greatest, the greatest most deceptive person in your life is you. Did you, did you catch that? There's this word, this deceitfulness of sin that exists. It, it's a word we even use to, we translate it sometimes, delusional. Like, you're, like sin will make you delusional. Rebelling against God will make you delusional. You will do things that don't make sense. You're, you're being delusional, but it gives us the formula to fight against it. Did you catch that? But exhort one another. That, that, that word, it's, uh, elsewhere we see this translated encourage. It says parakaleo, 
The kaleo is the, is the same root we get from ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, right? To call out. But the word para is, is important. You know this word. Like a paramedic. What is a paramedic? Is a paramedic a doctor? Is a paramedic a, a hospital? No. But a paramedic comes alongside you and gets you to help. It is a medic that works alongside you. They come and get you. And the word here is this, this paraklesos, this picture of exhorting one another, is to get beside some weather. I don't, did, you, did, you, did you catch the words? The seeds of this were in 2 Kings chapter 5. It says a father, this is a good word, and then it says they came, in verse three, 13, they came near to him and said. And what's implicit there in Hebrews, or excuse me, implicit there in 2 Kings 5 is explicit for the church this Hebrew Christians we see in chapter 3 of Hebrews. We come alongside one another. So who have you given permission to speak into your life? Because I want to warn you, you may be oblivious to the things in your life that for the people around you is incredibly obvious. And you might be missing out on the most important and amazing thing that God is doing in and around you because you're oblivious to it. And because you think you know better than everyone. Friend, all those terrible decisions, most of the awful things that have happened to you, if you were really honest with yourself, were a result of your own poor logic. Your own running because you, you think it feels good at the time. God made us this way. God built us for community. I mean, literally, like if, if you don't allow someone into your life, we cease to exist, Right? If men, for example, and women, we're created this way. If, if men and women don't exist in a community together, we go extinct. This is how this works. He's built us this way. This is how God evidently is the most glorified by bringing his people to bear his image, not by themselves, but in a group. And following Jesus is a we thing, not a me thing. And your best defense from yourself is surrounding yourself with people who know you, people you can trust. I would say this to maybe, if, you know, for many people, it's like, whether it's college students or, or people in their careers, that they're trying to figure out what to do next. Like, the most important decisions you make in your life are not what you think. The most important thing you will decide in your life is who you hang out with. If you're a college student, pick all the classes you want. The most important thing that will shape you in the next couple of years are the people you hang out with after class. The most important thing you will do is decide who you hang out with. Because they will bring some sort of shaping into your life. You get to decide when or where that happens and where it ultimately will be taking you. So maybe for some of you, this is an invitation to like relinquish a sense of isolation. This is for us the, the groundwork of gospel community. But maybe for some of you, you more seasoned believers. You get this, right? You're like, okay, I got this. I know I'm supposed to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. But maybe, maybe you don't know all the answers, but maybe you're, you're working toward that, right? You're, maybe you're more mature in the Bible. Maybe you know some theological terms, right? Maybe you like to open Daniel and Revelation and like pull out charts and put them together. I mean, okay, way to go. I'm excited for your knowledge. Uh, however, uh, your knowledge, if we're not careful, will 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 puff you up and it will tear others down. Whereas we're called in, in the gospel because we know what God has opened our eyes to to build one another, one another up in love. So maybe the question isn't necessarily for you, who will you allow or give permission to speak into your life? But here's the, maybe the question I'll ask you, will you be the person to bring gospel clarity to someone else's life? Will you be the person who 
parakaleo, who, who encourages, who draws near and says, I love you. I love you enough to risk our friendship. I love you enough to risk our tight-knit relationship for the sake of what's good for you and what glorifies God in your life. So maybe you've already got people who speak into your life, but will you be willing to do that as well? Will you be willing to do that? Maybe you're saying, I don't know all the answers. I don't know if I can do this. Well, I want to encourage you. Don't don't believe those words. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you believe in him? Friend, God has given you everything we need for life. He has implanted the spirit that pulled Jesus out of the grave is in you. Don't tell the spirit you can't do something. The spirit that raises Jesus from the dead is in you and in me. So with that in mind, will you let him work and be willing to be the person who speaks gospel truth and brings gospel clarity to someone else's life? And if that scares you, well, okay, then maybe, maybe here's the best place for you. This is, you need to be next door in Kids Connection, okay? Um, now, now here's a, what you don't know, that's actually kind of a varsity kind of clarity bringing. Uh, no one will shred your theology to pieces better than like a five-year-old. You're like, why? You're like, oh, ugh. it'll mess you up. But man, but man, like if you, want, if you want to begin this, we have a context for this, all right? So maybe your peers, the people around you, they intimidate you. Okay, let's go hang out with some kids, okay? We need tons of people who will speak gospel truth over children. There's so many words being spoken over our children right now that are not true, that will leave them looking to themselves for answers, and they will leave, they'll be hopeless, and they will, they will lack joy in the world. But maybe you can bring gospel clarity to some children. Maybe it's Kids Connection. Come talk to me. Come find my wife. She's currently sharing the gospel with kids. And there's some of you I know who are volunteers and they would love to have more people on the team. This is, we want to do this. We've been blessed with children. We've been entrusted with this. You can't say, who should we disciple? They're, they're the loud ones. They're the ones going, wah, me, wah. I mean, that's, that you can't wonder whose life you're supposed to bring clarity to. He made them loud and obnoxious so you wouldn't miss it, okay? And, and they want, they're hungry for truth. They, they want someone to come along and love them and care for them. No, you don't have all the answers. You don't have to have them all, but you at least have to know the one who has all the answers and help guide them to them. You don't have to be a doctor. Just be a decent paramedic. Come alongside them and guide them to Jesus. There's millions of opportunities for this. And this is why we do what we do. This is why gospel communities are so important for us. I believe that being in a gospel community is the power to change your life. It has the ability to do amazing things. Because as long as your only relationship in this church exists in a row, the ceiling will always be low. You'll always feel disconnected. This will always be like a shock. I mean, this will always be like social anxiety to the max because you're standing in a room full of strangers. And as long as you only sit in a row, it will always be disconnected. It's only when the gospel starts being applied across a cup of coffee, around a table, and for us in a gospel community. Why do we do this? We just do it because Jesus did, right? Jesus says, make disciples, and we're like, well, how did he do that? Well, he took a handful of people, and he, and he just kind of had them follow him for an extended period of time. Well, that seems novel. Let's do that. And so we just get a group of people together, and we follow Jesus. It's, it's I know. I can't believe this. And we want to be incredibly unoriginal in this area. As unoriginal as, as Naaman and his servants were? I mean, after all, was Naaman dumb? No. Was he a coward? No. I mean, he was everything you would want to be, and he still missed it. And so this is for us. This is what gospel communities are for us. 
And we immerse ourselves, we surround ourselves with people that we've given permission to speak a better word and to remind us of the times that we're believing something that's deficient, that's less than who God is. We're entertaining thoughts of God that are unworthy of him, and we allow people to come speak and correct us with gospel truth. And being in a gospel community has the ability to change your life. One of the ways I've said this with several of you is like this. I bet you anything you wish your mom and dad were part of a gospel community. I bet you anything you, you wish, you wish your mom had someone speaking gospel truth over her life when she was raising you and your family. I bet you wish you had a dad who had other men who would come along like, like, like the servants of Naaman to speak gospel truth and say, no, this isn't about you. This is finished in Christ. I bet, I bet when you think about it, I bet you realize there's probably some benefits that could have been passed on to you and your family if even your parents had been surrounded by people who they had given permission to speak gospel truth over their life and to remind them of a better word that God speaks. So being a part of a gospel community, yes, it will cost you time, it will cost you energy, and it will cost you privacy. It cost Naaman. It probably was a, I mean, it skipped over probably the stages of grief. He, went, he immediately was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. But I, I imagine there was a few, I imagine he pouted, right? That's what, that's what men like that do. They go through stages of anger and, I don't want to, idiot, my servant. I mean, it skipped over that, but I'm sure his ego took a shot. I'm sure his t- self-confidence took a shot. But in that moment, he realized the truth that God opposes the proud. That shot is a, is a, is a, is a means of grace, it's only when we're humbled that he draws near to us. It, it costs you. It will. It costs Naaman. But I've got to ask you, what would have happened to Naaman if he didn't have some people in his life that could come alongside him and remind him of the truth of who God is and what God does? What would have happened? What do you think would have happened to Naaman what would have happened? Because how you answer that question will determine how you engage with people in this church. Will it cost you to be immersed heavily in gospel community? Yes. But it could cost you infinitely more if you're not. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Naaman. We thank you ultimately that you didn't just work through this servant girl and through Naaman for their own sake, but you did so even for ours. I thank you that you divinely placed those people in Naaman's life to speak a word of truth to Naaman, to risk offending him, to risk their relationship, maybe even risk their own sta- their standing and stature before him for the sake of reminding him of a better word. I thank you that you did that. But even more so, God, I thank you that even in my own life, you put people around me who have been strategically placed to speak a better word. I think even of times in the last week, I'm reminded of how to be a better encourager. I'm reminded in the last month how how to be less driven by anger. I thank you that you've placed people that speak gospel truth over my life. I thank you for the blessing that it has been. So for some in this room, maybe they've never entertained the thought of hearing a better word from someone. Would today be the day they hear, this is who God is. This is what God does. 
these people are around me, and they're not to, just, like, to torture me, but they're here because God has placed them here to speak a word of healing and restoration and reconciliation over my life. Would they hear that word today? If there's some in this room, this is the first time they've ever heard that God is a miracle worker, would they begin to believe it? They would consider the possibility that what they currently have loved and what they have previously valued isn't what's actually true about who God is. Would you begin to open their eyes to believe this morning? For the rest of us, as we begin to worship, we begin to declare the goodness of what you've done for us in Jesus. May it stir us up not only to love you, but to love the people around us enough to overflow with this gospel to them. Allow us to exist in the next few moments as a gospel community, as a, a community of people that declare you are good, that, that declare the sufficiency of your work over us in Jesus Christ. May we receive it by faith and overflow with glory for your name. And we do this faithfully and obediently. In Jesus' name, amen.